This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today is February 26, 2022, and this is our 78th consecutive show dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Today's show is being taped um, because I won't be available on Saturday morning, so we're taping this a day early. But as always, you can get any questions you have for me. Um, at info at alessimd.com. I'm happy to answer your questions throughout the week, and uh, we will get them on the air. Uh, Today's guest is going to be Ms. Jennifer Pace. Ms. Pace is president of the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance. You know, a brain tumor is one of our greatest fears as humans. I see many patients who come in with a headache, and, and the first thing that goes to your mind, probably at about 2 o'clock in the morning, because when we're lying in bed at night and not feeling well and have a headache, the first thing you start thinking of, do I have a brain tumor? Do I have an aneurysm? And her group is an advocacy group bringing services to others in our state. So I thought it was important to get her on in the second half of today's program. I'd be remiss in not speaking a little bit about what's going on in the Ukraine. Here's a a country that is currently under siege. And what makes me sad is the fact that I actually thought that when fighting this COVID-19 pandemic, it would make us more aware of, I don't know, our global brotherhood, that we're all on the same planet, we're all trying to do the same things. Uh, Granted, we have different cultures, right? Some people are uh, not believing in democracy as we are, as the Ukrainians are, with fair elections. Um, But whatever it is, they're entitled to develop their own culture on their own property. So I'm sad because we've taken a step, we've taken 70 years of steps backwards. This hasn't happened since World War II. But I'm hoping that we can all pull together and in some way support these people and become more aware, even with uh, people in Russia, people in China, that we are one globe and there are certain things we need to protect for each other. And human life is probably the greatest. When we look at some of our statistics here for COVID-19, United States deaths are up over 944,000. Here in Connecticut, our positivity rate has dropped, and it continues to drop. Uh, It's at 3.99% today. Um, It was as low as 2.97%. So we're getting back down into that particular range where we feel more comfortable to loosen things up. And we're seeing that. We're, we're expecting in the next day or two that 
the Centers for Disease Control will be lifting the mandate as far as wearing masks or recommending that people lift the mandate regarding wearing masks indoors in certain settings. And again, you have to judge the setting. I mean, if you're going to be on an airplane in close proximity to others, if you're on any public transportation, you're going to want to wear a mask. But again, we're leaving it up to the individual. I personally, when I go into a store, I wear a mask. Now, the important thing with that is it's not just any mask. It's a KN95, an N95, one of these masks that has two-way protection, what we call a respirator. So it's not only going to protect people to my potential germs and respiratory germs, but also protect me against others when I'm in that establishment. So, again, social distance, using masks, wash your hands. we got to stick with the basics, and I think that that's what we have to do, not just for COVID-19 or any infection. But gradually, we're moving in that direction, and we need to be ready to go back to it. I'm sad to mention and speak a little bit about the death of Dr. Paul Farmer. For those of you who don't know Dr. Farmer, he is a physician, an infectious disease specialist from Boston, Massachusetts, and founder of an organization called Partners in Health. Partners in Health has been an organization dedicated to bringing health care to the poorest of our world. If you've ever read the book Mountains Beyond Mountains, uh, I recommend it highly. It's a book written by Tracy Kidder, who followed uh, Dr. Farmer at his time uh, in Haiti and around the world. Um, he died last week of an, a cardiac event. He died in his sleep while teaching in Rwanda. He, he was the man who had a quest to bring health care to everyone. He started out going to prisons, prisons in Mexico, Haiti, and other places, and specifically with, the, with infectious diseases. Um, it's so telling that he was creative. His mind worked differently. Um, for example, the World Health Organization right, resisted giving HIV medication to people who were illiterate in Haiti because he, they felt that they would not know when to take their medication because they were illiterate. So instead, Dr. Farmer set up a program and created a chart. So the chart relied on the sun's position. So people would know when to take their medication just by the position of the sun and help to fight HIV. And, you know, it, it was so important for him to just move through things. He, he hated when people were saying that, uh, you know, somehow you can't get health to people who are poor. And that's what he dedicated his life to doing and his organization, Partners in Health. I never had the honor of meeting um, Dr. Farmer. Um, I've worked with many of his people in Haiti. He founded a medical school in Mirabele, Haiti, um, that is uh, thriving. And they have a program there to train physicians in neurology. Many of my colleagues from the United States have worked uh, with him there. He was only 62 years old. 
and um, it's it's a great loss for all of us who work around the world, and it's it's a reminder of why we went into medicine. On February 26, 1903, Dr. Richard Gatling died. He was an American physician and inventor. The irony here is that Dr. Gatling, Gatlin is best remembered for the infection of the Gatling gun, a machine gun um, that bears his name. He designed that in 1861, and it was used to inflict tremendous, tremendous injury during the Civil War. Um, when we fast forward, the irony becomes more profound as we see what was his was a crude, but nevertheless a machine gun, a gun that was able to fire multiple bullets rapidly and cause so much damage and injury to people. We see it today in our schools with AR-15s. They're all variations on a theme. We're seeing it today in the Ukraine. So a great irony for a trained physician who worked to bring healing but had this mind, and he invented many other things, but his name now will always be associated with a machine gun. We're going to take a short break. They're going to be back to talk a little bit about uh, neurology. A lot of people who have emailed in uh, about where I fit in, what's my role in neurology and maybe in neurology in general. So we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about that. And then we're going to be chatting with my guest, Ms. Jennifer Pace, who's the board president of the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon, on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, I thought I'd take this time to talk a little bit about what I do in neurology and some of the new breakthroughs in neurology that I've been working with um, over the course of the past year or so. And uh, currently, uh, I'm a neurologist and specialize in neuromuscular disease and sports neurology. I was in private practice for 29 years in Norwich, Connecticut, worked at Backus Hospital, and enjoyed my time in private practice a great deal, especially in solo private practice, because um, I was able to spend time with patients and really get to know them in a solo, small practice. Nowadays, that's almost impossible to have. Uh, I came to work for the University of Connecticut uh, seven years ago. Um, thanks to a doctor named Dr. Gus Mazaka. You know, most things happen by happenstance. And in this case, I was working at a sideline for UConn football. And Dr. Mazaka, who was the chairman of orthopedics, um, asked if I'd ever consider working with them. I was 60 years old, and my family, my children had all moved to this side of the state uh, in the Simsbury area, West Hartford, and Avon. So... 
my wife and I decided it was time for a change. Sold the house, sold the practice, and moved over. And I split my time now between UConn Health and Hartford Healthcare, where I have the honor of working with my daughters, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa, who is at Hartford Hospital, and Dr. Catherine Alessi, who is with me at UConn. And one of the things we've developed at UConn has been a neuromuscular EMG department or laboratory uh, where we do studies on peripheral nerve, specifically the the so-called EMG. And our role there is we work primarily with surgeons who need to get more information before doing surgery, particularly hand surgery. And I'm hoping to have, uh, as one of my guests, Dr. Anthony Perino soon, who directs the new hand center at the Musculoskeletal Institute. And our job is to find out if there's nerve injury, where the nerve injury is, how bad the nerve injury is, and, and really to work with the surgeon to provide information as to is an operation needed, and if so, what operation. So... Uh, It's great fun to be in that environment, especially an academic environment. So it's very different from private practice from the standpoint that now you work with residents and fellows. And in fact, you have access to different types of equipment and ways of looking at it and looking at the problem. Particularly in this case, we've started to do ultrasonic imaging of peripheral nerves. I've always had an interest in doing this, but in private practice, it's difficult to do, primarily because the equipment is expensive. And when you come to a a tertiary care facility like UConn, Hartford Healthcare, St. Francis, when you get to that level, this equipment is readily available because it's used for multiple purposes. So an ultrasound machine can be used for pregnant women. It's used for musculoskeletal problems to place a needle uh, or to look at something. You'd use ultrasound to look at the heart. So if you're not using it for one thing, you could be using it for something else. Uh, And that makes it more economical. So we now have access to looking at ultrasound in peripheral nerves, giving us another piece to the puzzle as to an injury to a peripheral nerve like carpal tunnel or ulnar nerve injury at the elbow or people who have suffered trauma and crush injuries to their hand, um, we can look at that. Also in the lower extremities, we look at peripheral neuropathy, which is a big source of referral to our group, um, as well as other injuries to peripheral nerves, um, the perineal nerve where you get numbness on the top of your foot and feel like um, your foot is falling asleep all the time. So with that, we've been able to add that, and we keep expanding that. And again, as I said, I work with my daughter, Dr. Catherine Alessi, um, at UConn, and uh, I'm enjoying it a great deal. Um, It's really given me an opportunity to extend my career in a different setting. What's also come about is I spend time at Hartford HealthCare working with their sports neurology department. And that's with my daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa, where we spend a lot of time looking at athletes. And I do it for UConn at, and for all UConn athletes, um, but also we see a lot more at her office uh, where we do a lot of sports neurology and 
um, spend a lot of time advocating for athletes. Um, athletes who are older and had multiple injury think they had CTE or something of that nature, we can do an evaluation. Uh, we work with teams there and athletic trainers to really get people back, whether it be after a concussion or other type of neurologic disorder. You know, we used to think, for example, people with epilepsy shouldn't be playing sports. And there was always that caution of whether an, an athlete with epilepsy should be playing a contact sport of some type. Uh, nowadays, with the advanced use of anti-convulsant treatments, uh, we have many athletes who are participating at the highest levels of sport, including contact sports, um, with a diagnosis of epilepsy. And they could do that safely. We also deal with a population of patients who have multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis, you know, it always conjures up that impression of someone in a wheelchair and severely disabled. And really, nowadays, that makes up about 10% of patients. About 90% of patients are still out there working and um, participating in activities. So we could spend time with those patients and really give them advice on getting back to um, the sports they enjoy, um, despite of their condition, their neurologic condition. So um, it, it's really great to work there um, with the sports neurology group um, at Hartford Healthcare, in addition to our group at the University of Connecticut. And uh, I thought it was worthwhile mentioning um, some of those things that are available um, and really reaching out um, to the folks involved uh, in those programs. So if you were to call Hartford Hospital, um, you could ask for sports neurology, um, and they would connect you with our office there. And obviously at UConn, um, if you uh, want, want or need to have an evaluation for peripheral nerve injury, um, the phone number is 860-679-6733, and our staff can direct you to where um, you need to get evaluated and uh, where you can expect a very thorough uh, evaluation and possibly a surgical referral if needed. With that, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with the second half of our program. We're going to chat with my guest, doc. Uh, well, I said doctor because I usually have a doctor on, but um, this time we switched it up. So uh, Jennifer Pace is the board president for the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance. Uh, and I'm looking forward to our chat because I think she brings a lot of helpful information uh, that many of our listeners or people our listeners know uh, can uh, really benefit from. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon on WTIC News Talk 1080 at WTIC.com. It gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce in this segment of the program uh, my guest, um, Jennifer Pace. She is the board president for the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance. 
And uh, she comes to us via a good friend of the program, Dan Tapper. Uh, Dan was actually instrumental in helping us start this program 12 years ago, along with Gene Sheehan. And now he is a board member at the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance, working with uh, Jen. Jen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Anthony. I appreciate it. Uh, and I understand this is your 15-year anniversary? Absolutely it is. And uh, we are very excited to be still here 15 years later. And uh, I guess on the one hand, it's necessary, but of course we wish it wasn't necessary to still be fighting brain tumors, but unfortunately they remain one of the leading causes of death among young males, as well as it's like the leading cause of death in pediatric brain cancer. So I'm sorry, cancers, I should say. So it's uh, our, our mission continues and uh, the fight goes on. You know, when I, I said at the outset of the program, I think that's one of our greatest fears is having a brain tumor. When we think of it from a medical condition standpoint, um, you know, people are always coming to me if they have a headache or a persistent headache. The first thought that they comes into their mind, they have, it's either a brain tumor or number two, it's an aneurysm. And right. what's been the role of CTBTA? We are essentially uh, an advocacy group for patients and caregivers ever since we, we started as a support system for other patients and caregivers. And uh, uniquely, I myself am a brain tumor survivor, and I co-founded the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance along with another patient and a caregiver, and then our families. So um, in that way, we're very unique that we have always existed to help other patients and their families. And I think as, you know, a lot of these things are often homegrown because when I first found out, it's interesting you should say that when you have a headache, the first question is, do I have a brain tumor? I never thought that. And of course, my diagnosis came as a complete shock when they told me I had a brain tumor. I looked at the neurosurgeon and, and, and said, really? I thought you were going to tell me I was pregnant. I mean, I had, it, it would just smacked me upside the face. Literally. Well, you were very like, young, though. I assume you were very sure. young. I, I don't yeah, know your age, but I looked at your no, picture. I was, so. only in, I was only 30, in my 30s, young 30s, and I was a young mom, and I thought, what are you talking about? I'm a mom. I have two babies at home. I have to, you know, I have work to do. I have to go take care of them. And, and ironically, that was the same case for my, you know, the woman who co-founded. She also was, you know, a young mom with two kids at home, and she, too, was diagnosed here in the greater Hartford area around the same time, so, you know, close to 15 years ago. That's been a long journey for you. I mean, a successful journey, to say the least. Um, for sure. You, uh, so... What motivated you? What motivated you and another mom? Okay, there's right. I mean, there's nothing like working with moms. Okay, when you guys get an idea, it usually comes to fruition. So, true. what did Very you true. and another mom decide to do? What made you decide to pull this one off? I think a lot of it was based on our own personal experience, and we truly wanted to show people that, you know, change the change the face of a brain tumor because like you, you started out the segment saying how it's everybody's worst fear and, and understandably because it can be a terribly um, just a terrible disease to have to fight and to watch a loved one. I say all the time, I say, sadly, when somebody passes a brain tumor, often you lose your loved one before you literally lose your loved one in that 
obviously they may still be living, but not the person that you knew. Uh, I, I often liken it to almost like an Alzheimer's diagnosis because it, it, in the worst case scenarios, that's what it's like. You just, you know, you do, you do lose the person. But on the other hand, there are many people, and I'm blessed and I understand that, but many people like myself who live with brain tumors or have had brain tumors and do go on to survive. And I think that um, so many of us just didn't, you know, it's like terrible when you say, oh, I have a brain tumor. People are like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's immediately doom and gloom as opposed to, okay, we've got this. And it was about giving people hope and more so raising money to go and go back to the hospitals and help make Connecticut a center of excellence for brain tumor care. Because we also wanted people to feel confident getting treatment closer to home instead of feeling like they had to flee the state and go to other brain tumor centers. Not to say there's anything wrong with that or judge it. I certainly respect anybody who chooses to seek help wherever you find it. Um, and I myself did do that. You know, I, I did look around for options. But, um, you know, we wanted to make Connecticut a center of excellence for brain tumor care. We wanted to raise awareness. I don't think people realize um, it's, you know, it's considered to be sort of one of those diseases that is not prevalent enough to receive a ton of funding from the NIH. So therefore, there is not a lot of money given out for research and for, you know, looking t for advanced care. So for all those net reasons, and just to show support, I think when I first was diagnosed, I wanted nothing more than to talk to somebody else who had had brain surgery. Never mind. I mean, I didn't even think about, you know, brain cancer or having to any of that. When I first was told I had to have brain surgery, my biggest fear was like, what? I have to have brain surgery? You got to be kidding me. I've never had more than, you know, in my life, like stitches in a broken thumb. So it's intimidating. And I think that it was nice to be able to just talk to someone else. And that's what we do. We're a phone call away. If someone wants to talk to somebody who's been through not an identical experience, but a similar one, we provide that support. Um, additionally, we provide research to all the major brain tumor care centers here in the state of Connecticut, and we continue to spread, you know, awareness and support for caregivers, anybody going through this disease. Here's what impresses me about what you just said, and that is when you made the analogy with Alzheimer's disease, because, you know, with Alzheimer's disease... There's not much that can be done. But with my brain tumor patients, it becomes a new lifestyle. It's a new job. It's, it's a whole new. There are so many doctor visits involved for them and their families. And I know I went through cancer. It wasn't brain cancer with my mom, but everything shifted, okay? The center of our lives shifted to chemotherapy, radiation, whatever was needed. And it means days and days at a time and trips to a hospital and sitting and waiting endlessly, right, for right. doctors, okay? And, you know, that that's a big difference when you have a condition like a brain tumor or any kind of cancer, but especially a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. It's time intensive for everybody. And I wonder how people do that, not just from the time standpoint, but also financially. I mean, you almost have to be of some kind of means to be able to afford this, right? I mean. So, so true. It's so true. And for that reason, it was what motivated us early on to set up patient assistance funds at all the hospitals that we help with because we recognize that 
if one, I mean, you do, it, it requires such a support system. And I was, I was blessed and I was very lucky that I had family and my, my husband's company was supportive enough that I had people who could help, to your point, drive me to my radiation treatments, take me to my doctor's appointments. Um, because, you know, the other thing people don't think about it is many people who end up with a brain tumor, the initial onset and finding out about that is through a grand mal seizure. And legally, if you have a grand mal seizure, you're not supposed to drive. So I had to give up my license for six months. And you can imagine here I am in my young 30s and I have two babies and I'm typically, you know, driving all over the place every day, taking them here, there and everywhere. And now suddenly I can't drive. I have to go to, for daily radiation treatments. And, you know, so therefore I ha we had to have help. Now we have set up these patient assistance funds so that if people find themselves in these situations and don't have a support system close to home, that's there to help them, whether it's because if they need rides or if it's because, God forbid, a child is diagnosed and one of the parents has to leave their job, take a leave of absence, and they're losing an income. They may have a hard time paying for things that you don't even think about a lot, but just, you know, simple like bills, like just to have heat on in the, these winter months or it could be groceries, it could be anything, electricity. So if you need help like that, we set up these patient assistance funds that are available at the hospitals to help. Yeah, and I don't know if you work with Healing Meals at all, but it's a great Absolutely. group up here in Blue. Love and, uh, that group. Sarah Leathers and, and her group who have been on yeah. the program, and we support a great deal in, in helping people get through these challenges by providing meals um, several times a week uh, for them to uh, get through this. And, um, you know, I have so much respect for my patients who go through it. I saw a man this week. Who, who had a chronic condition and he did it all himself. He had no family. He had no spouse. And, you know, he would get himself to chemo and radiation every day. I'm like, right. you know, Ubering or, or whatever. I mean, it's right. just, I, I, uh, when I was in medical school, a friend told me about his father and how much respect he had for his father who had a brain tumor and took the subway every day. Um, wow. to, because he didn't want to bother anybody. Everybody was working. He would take the mm -hmm. subway down to Sloan Kettering, lived in the Bronx to get his treatments. Um, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing the fortitude that um, your group has and, and, and to be rewarded. I guess I, I have to ask you, I mean, what's the biggest challenge you think for your group? Is it, the, is it money, raising money or what's the biggest, toughest thing to do? I would say the biggest challenge is raising money because it's it's something that we have to do as any non-for-profit does year in and year out. And, uh, you know, finding corporate sponsors has been challenging uh, because we are, you know, we're a smaller group. And that's been one of the things that we have wonderful support from our hospital partners and, uh, and they've been tremendous. So absolute, you know, gratitude and thanks for that. But it, it's a matter of constantly, you know, when you're a small nonprofit and you find you're constantly going back to your, your small group of friends and family, and it's like you feel like how many times can you go back to the well? <laughs> and we're trying to raise our awareness and broaden our reach so that we can perhaps bring in other outside community sponsors and things like that. Um, having said that, obviously the fundraising is the main thing that allows us to do what we do, but it's also raising awareness. And, and just getting getting the word out because even though we have been working for 15 years, we still meet people quite frequently that, you know, don't know about us. And, 
you think, really? Okay, how, how could this be? But even so, so it's, it's awareness and fundraising, you know, are the two probably most challenging things. Do the hospital navigators know about you? So what, I keep mentioning that you work with all the different hospitals. Which hospitals particularly do you work with now? Sure. So we are, uh, we have patient assistance funds set up at um, Connecticut Children's Medical Center, Hartford Hospital, Yale Brain Tumor Center, and St. Francis Hospital. We also have uh, provided funding. We've, in our, since our inception, we have awarded out to these hospital partners um, over, actually with our most recent allocation, we just had a board meeting last week, we're almost close to 1.5 million. But as of year end, we had already awarded almost 1.3 million out over the last 15 years to all of these different hospital partners. And within that, it has helped to pay for specialized brain tumor care equipment, these patient assistance funds that I mentioned, and also research at UConn Medical Center, Yale New Haven Hospital, more recently Hartford Hospital, and uh, CCMC for a few years now. So all of the hospitals that are working on brain tumor research locally. And our goal has been to you know, we're a smaller group, but we hope that even with smaller dollars, if we can invest in research and end up providing enough seed funding for, you know, these uh, efforts, who knows where it may lead. But that's the, obviously the long-term goal is to find a cure, but the short-term goal is to find better treatment options because we, you know, the treatment, the standard of care treatment hasn't changed in over a decade. I mean, I was diagnosed back in 2006, and as of 2004, the standard of care treatment for a a glioblastoma, which is one of the brain tumors that tends to be deadliest and most often talked about or you hear about in the media, is chemotherapy and radiation, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. And that's been since 2004. So you can kind of, you know, think what you will about that, but we want, we need more. We need better, you know, treatments and um, advancements. So, you know, obviously that's a, it's our labor of love we continue to do and just pound the pavement and try to raise money, awareness. And um, and we do all that by having events. It's always been, uh, you know, a, a volunteer effort having events here locally in Connecticut. And uh, it's it's been, I will say that the the level of support from the people that do know us has been tremendous. How do people get in touch with you? So they can always go to our website, which is ctbta.org, and uh, connect with us that way. It's probably the easiest. We are on social media. So for Instagram and Twitter, it's at ctbta. And Facebook, it's a little bit longer, but you spell out the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance, Inc. Um, But we're, yeah, we're only a phone call away um, or just, uh, you know, an email and, we're a group of more than you know more than twelve people who are ready and willing to reach out if someone's just looking to talk to somebody. If you want a caregiver to caregiver connection or a patient to patient connection, um, since the pandemic's hit, we've been limited to as everybody has. It's been a yeah. little bit more through phone and Zoom, but prior to that, we would meet in person and we had a, a gray ribbon club gathering once a month where we would kind of you know have a nice support group setting where we would all sort of go. We used to go to Nora's Cupcake in Brubeck Square when that was there and just get together and be able to talk and share. And, you know, again, no two stories are exactly alike, but it's about having sort of camaraderie with other people and uh, just offering that 
personal human support, which I think is so valuable when you're going through something like this. Like you said, it's a whole shift, right? You yep. you hear that diagnosis and, and your whole life takes a shift and it affects not only the patient, but the entire their entire family, their loved ones, their friends, everybody. Yeah, and you know so. that, I, I want to let you know, those small grants that you give out um, for a young investigator who may have an idea about brain tumor um, count so much. When I was a fellow at the University of Michigan, I got one of these small grants because um, I had an idea. And when I left Michigan, someone else picked it up and carried it on. So, you know, those small grants, not the big NIH grants, right? But you've got to start yeah. somewhere. And it's groups like yours that provide that seed funding for the big stuff, for the big breakthroughs. So I, I want to commend you and commend your whole group um, for what you're doing for our community and our patients. Uh, Jen, thanks for joining us today. Um, much appreciated. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, Saturday morning, 11 till noon. On WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And wrapping up today, I want to really thank our guest today, who's been Jen Pace from the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance. I especially want to thank Dan Tapper. Um, Dan has been a friend of the show and actually was instrumental, along with Gene Sheehan, in creating this program 12 years ago. Um, and Dan is a board member for the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance uh, and a good friend. If you have need to get in touch with anyone at the Connecticut Brain Tumor Alliance, their phone number is 860-264-5776, or you could reach them at info at ctbta.org, and you'll find that to be very helpful and making a good connection there. In wrapping up, I want to reinforce the thought that as things loosen up here in Connecticut regarding masks, that you use good judgment because that's what's going to keep you safe. That keeps you defended against the virus, against illness in general. You want to do things that always promote good health. That's why you listen to this program. So you can wear a mask, you can not wear a mask, but when you look at the environment you're going into, it may be worthwhile wearing one of those free N95s that are available at almost any pharmacy um, these days. I also remember want all of you to remember in some way to pray for those people in the Ukraine. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are under siege at the current time, something that so many of us can't really understand and have never had to be around that. Many thanks to our studio producer, Anthony Dorenzo, has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler, as always, is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it at Healthy Rounds Podcast. You can just download it on iTunes or at odyssey.com. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with attorney John Matulis. Please remember to help save lives by getting vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. 
sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.